confession of the early church. And this means that the words of the creeds, they're not, they're not scripture, but they represent scripture. They summarize scripture. They distill scripture down into something that's easily memorizable and something that is easily professed. So we've been going through this creed, and uh, its origins are unknown, but it's simple. Uh, it emerges in the second century as a grassroots expression of faith with threefold purpose. It's educational. It's meant to teach new believers, but also even people who might be seeking what it looks like to believe in this new God in the Mediterranean world called Jesus Christ. It's Trinitarian. It's organized around three distinct movements of the triune God, Father, Son, Spirit. And then last, it's sacramental. And that just means that the early church, they tied the creed to something profound and something beautiful. They tied it to baptism. And we're going to look at what a brief um, moment of that, a slice of that would have looked like in the early church. But first, I, I wanted to respond. Uh, so one of the things that um, I do is a uh, campus pastor to UNF as well as go share in the gospel a lot. And it's amazing. It's awesome. We do it on campus. So we enter into a lot of apologetics. We enter a lot of um, uh, kind of debates with people, a lot of discussions with people. Um, you know, it's great because it's personal. It's one-on-one. -on -one. Many of you might see those things, though, through social media, through trolls, etc. But some of those things might go like this. Well, the early church, they didn't really know what they believed, and the Bible wasn't really made till church councils or till Constantine in, like, the fourth century. Or they'll say the church and what they believe in is just made up by white people. And, and, and this is what people think. But if we take a moment to actually study history, to actually study scripture, to look at the creed, you'll find that the creed predates a council by almost 200 years. You also find that the creed comes from churches that are in France and Italy and Africa and Egypt and Turkey and Greece and the Middle East. So it's certainly not a white expression of faith. It's an expression of a united people, multi-ethnic, who believe that one God rules and reigns over all things. So let's look at what that looked like would have been in early church. So I'd love to paint a picture for you. You're, you're part of a church um, in, uh, in a small city uh, in Turkey. There's a river that runs outside of the city, and, and you gather here once a week on the first day of the week. You gather early in the morning, and oftentimes you'd sing songs of praise, followed up by a short message from someone that you guys, the church calls the shepherd. And then everyone spends a little bit of time talking about their days, and then they go off to work. This is what an early church would have looked like. And so how the early church would have practiced this creed is, again, you gather week after week, outside of the city because there's persecution if you worship a strange God within the city. And you sing a few songs and you hear a message from the text that you believe in. And then you are joyfully watching 
two or three people clothed in white as they go down and walk to the riverbank. They step in the water. Are you guys, you guys see that picture now? Is that kind of embedded in your mind? The shepherd asks you to listen intently. And then he asks these two or three people who are getting ready for baptism. He asks them to renounce evil works and the devil and to say the creed. And so I'd love to read the creed for you. And then we're going to all stand up and recite it up to the point in our teaching series where we're at. So these new converts would have said these words. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. As they would have finished these words, they would have been dipped under, fully immersed into the river, and they would have risen believers in Jesus Christ. They were risen as members of the church. And you're at the riverbank and you're watching all this happen and you can't help but start to just clap and be joyful and excited. And as they come out of the river, you give them big, awkward, wet, sloppy hugs. They're now part of your church in this small city where you're just a small group of people, but you believe in the one true God who's now saved you from your sins, and you rejoice at this. This was the power of the creed for the early church. And so I'd love to invite you now just to stand up with me. And we're going to recite all the way through the end of the bold. And so uh, I'm just going to start with I believe, but I'd love for you guys just to, to follow in. We're just going to read it together. It should be on the screen. So we're going to read it together. So don't repeat after me. We're just going to read it together. It's going to be awkward and fun and beautiful because we're a community, and that's what community worship looks like sometimes. So let's read together. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. Amen. You guys may be seated. So we're in our fifth week of the series, and we are planning on um, just tackling those bold words. Uh, just a quick reminder as well, this is a Q&A series. So if you have any questions or comments or things that you uh, would like to, to text in, if there's something that's unclear, um, please go ahead and send those in. But we're going to get started. Again, the words, the bolded words, he ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. 
This statement is about three things. Three things that deeply matter to our faith. The statement is about the location of Jesus Christ. The statement is about the authority of Jesus Christ. And finally, the statement is about one of the roles that Jesus Christ will have, judgment. So let's start with the location. Uh, if you have um, your Bible, go ahead and flip over to Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4. And we're going to look at verses 7 through 10. So feel free to use either cordless Bible you might have. This is cordless, but you also have other kind of newer cordless Bibles that you guys can swipe through. So either cordless Bible works. We're going to start in verse 7, Ephesians chapter 4. Now grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of the Messiah's gift. For it says, when he ascended on high, he took prisoners into captivity. He gave gifts to people. But what does he ascended mean except that he descended to the lower parts of the earth? The one who descended is the same as the one who ascended far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. This is Paul's word to the church of Ephesus. And there's two important notes. The first is that Paul, in this passage, he's actually quoting a passage from the Psalms. He quotes Psalm 68, verse 18. And, and this is a song and a psalm begging God to defeat the enemies of his people. So I'd love to just read uh, this verse, Psalm 68, 18. It says this, You ascended to the heights, taking away captives, you receive gifts from people, even from the rebellious, so the Lord God might live there. What's amazing about what Paul is doing in Ephesians, he's teaching a people group that have no knowledge of Jewish scripture. And so he's having to interpret Jewish scripture, interpret Jewish songs. Some of the same songs that they're singing by the river Paul is quoting them in his letters to them, explaining the words, explaining their meaning. And Paul's interpreting that this song has come to pass. Jesus Christ has defeated the enemies of his people. The second thing that Paul does in this brief passage is he relies on the historical account of the other gospels. He, he relies on the witnesses and the words from the text of people who have seen Christ. They've seen him leave. They've seen him ascend into the heavens. And so he corroborates their account by telling them that Christ has ascended. So location matters. Location matters, and, and here's why. I'm going to summarize all of Jewish theology with one slide. It's going to be really simple. So if you guys want to put that slide up there. This is all of Jewish theology, that there is God, 
And then there's a clear line. And everything else is under God. Why? Because God is creator and there's no one else who can create. So by default, everything falls under the creator. But Paul is teaching and preaching that Christ has ascended. In so doing, he is saying that there, there's no longer an understanding in the Jewish world that it's just God and everything else, but now Christ is with God. Christ is God. Location matters. This would have been revolutionary to Jewish believers at the time. The second reason why location matters is, again, we've said that this is the word of the Lord to the church in Ephesus. The account of the church in Ephesus in Acts 19 is, is really powerful. Paul kind of crash lands into Ephesus like he does in so many different cities, preaching the gospel, preaching a message. And immediately, he confronts the local gods there. Immediately, he confronts what the Ephesians worship. At this time, the Greek city really held two goddesses as kind of the singular focus of their worship. The first was Artemis. Some of you guys might have heard the, the seven wonders of the world in the temple of Artemis at Ephesus. They believed that Artemis, her perfect image, had crash-landed near Ephesus, and so they built a temple to worship her. Artemis was kind of the goddess of the hunt, a warrior, also over life. So if you wanted to become pregnant, you would worship Artemis. If you wanted victory in battle, you would worship Artemis. The second goddess that Ephesus worshipped was the goddess Hecate. She's one of the goddesses of the underworld. Often pictured in kind of three-tiered fashions with torches to guide people and keys. She's pictured with keys all the time. And the belief was if you're being afflicted by something or if you wanted some kind of comfort, you would worship her and she would give you light or she would unlock what you needed to know. These were the gods at Ephesus that the people worshipped. And Paul came in and preached about another god, mightier than they. And the amazing thing happened. People believed. But not only did they believe, they, they brought their scrolls and their little statuettes, their magic rituals, their potions, their books, to the center of the city and they burn them in an act of obedience that they desired for the one true God to be the only God in their life. And this is recorded in Acts 19 and it's also recorded by a riot that happens. And so the, the church in Ephesus is kind of kicked out of the city and where do they worship? They worship by a river every week singing songs, hearing messages, and seeing the creeds spoken as new believers are added to the number. 
I think in, in our society, we worship um, keys as well. It's one of the beautiful things in Scripture that you hear that Christ holds now the keys of death. And he holds now the keys that matter. But yet we, we worship these keys a lot. Oh, not, not, not outright. But new cars, new homes, new promotions at work. And if it's not these keys, we have these also this thing called a keyboard that we tend to worship as well. Logging hours, making our status and identity about these possessions. There's only one who holds the keys to death. And it's not a Greek goddess. It's Jesus Christ. He holds the only keys that matter in this world. And so what is Paul trying to say when he's saying that Christ ascended? He's trying to say that there's a cosmic supremacy to Jesus Christ. And the victory of Christ is leading his church out of idolatry, out of our false keys of wealth and status, and into heaven. He ends that passage in Ephesians saying Christ is filling all things. That's amazing because that's language of kingship. When a ruler takes over an area, he begins to fill that area, that region, with all of his policies, all of his gifts, all of his authority, all of his appointments, all of his military. Paul is saying Jesus Christ has ascended and is God, and he's filling the world with all of his glory and goodness. This is what he ascended to heaven means. Let's move on to uh, the next line from the creed. It's, and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. So flip over a few, uh, a few short pages to Colossians. Again, this is Paul writing again to the church. So we're looking at Colossians 3, 1 through 4. So, if you've been raised with the Messiah, seek what is above, where the Messiah is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on what is above, not on what is on the earth. For you've died, and your life is hidden with the Messiah in God. When the Messiah, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. This is Paul's word to the church at Coloss, and, and they struggled with some things just like Ephesus did. Uh, they struggled with the worship of other things and beings from false teachers. Maybe that sounds kind of weird in our culture, worshiping other things and beings, but it's out there. Twelve years ago, I was a, a lifeguard in Colorado at an LT program, and they had uh, this conference there, and, and so one of the women who was swimming in the pool, um, you know, I just making small chat, and, and hey, what are you here for? Oh, we have a conference. Oh, great. Like, what's it about? Well, it's called Heaven's Gate. It's like, oh, <laughs> like, what does that mean? <laughs> you know, we believe that uh, heaven um, is channeled here, and, 
and, and that we can, um, through a process, kind of be within the gate or realm of heaven through energy. And, and she kind of lost me, and I just, oh, that's really cool. And, and uh, like, I was just really taken aback. This last week on campus, um, I was with a, um, a team from the UF, and we were just talking to people, asking to pray for them, and, and asked to pray for uh, a young woman. She had another young woman next to her, a few years younger, and we just asked, hey, how can we pray for you? That's one of the ways we just get in spiritual conversations with people, and just, oh, thank you so much. Well, I'm an energy shaman. And I was like, oh, okay, I don't know what that is, and so... We kind of just talked about it, and she said that she channeled superior beings and archangels, and, and we talked for a little over an hour, and she would share for a number of minutes, and then we'd share about Christ. She'd share for a number of minutes, and her, all of her conversations had this echo of truth maybe some allusions from Scripture, but they were being ap applied completely wrong and completely without Christ. And what was difficult was that the young lady with her was actually her disciple. And she was trying to teach her how to channel energy and become an energy shaman like herself, able to go through multi-dimensions. We ended the time praying that um, they would see truth. I'm thankful that they allowed us to pray with them. Worship of other things and beings is going on now, just as it went on in the Colossians church. And, and I think that's one of the problems, because once you introduce this spiritual element, the whole church was really excited, so they said, everything goes. And Paul, in his letter to the Colossians, says, no, everything does not go. Jesus Christ is what matters. The other thing the Colossians church struggled with is they had an under-realized heavenly hope. And that simply means that their hope was not in heaven. Their hope was in things of the world, like a new promotion, more wealth, status. And this was causing inequality in the church. And so Paul speaks to these things but one of the ways that he does so is he shares that Christ is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. And we might not be able to connect, oh, like, like what's, what's the big deal about seated? We see in the ancient world, kings sat down to rule and reign. They stood up to pronounce judgment, and they left their throne room when they went to go and wage war and battle. And Paul is saying Jesus Christ is seated next to God as a ruling and reigning king over all things. This is fascinating because in Jewish scripture, in Jewish thought, God is seated and everybody else is standing up around him. But Paul says there's someone who sits next to God. The very extension of of his power, identical in nature, and it's Jesus Christ seated with God. Again, we flip back to Psalms 110. Again, Paul is trying to teach 
Jewish songs, Jewish theology to a group of people who don't know it. And he's doing it through song. Psalm 110, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The message is that God is saying to Christ, sit, be a co-reigner with me until we defeat all things. So what what does this mean? It means that authority matters. Who we allow to sit down in our lives is going to rule us. And Paul says, if you've professed Christ, you'll realize that your life is actually hidden with him in the heavens where he is seated, ruling and reigning. So you have one ruler in your life. And then he shares, Christ will be revealed. There's a beautiful hope to that. You see, Christ is hidden now, but one day he will be revealed, and that's hope. And it combats all the little heresies we bring. And not like the heresies, like the the big theological ones, but the practical ones that, that we do all the time by elevating our comfort, or our wants, or our desires above Christ. We'll go to the last, the last statement. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. Again, flip over uh, to 2 Thessalonians. Paul, again, is writing to another Greek city-state. And this is what he says. Second Thessalonians uh, 1, verse 5. It is a clear evidence of God's righteous judgment that you will be counted worthy of God's kingdom, which you also are suffering, since it is righteous for God to repay affliction with those who afflict you and to reward with rest you who are afflicted along with us. This will take place at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with his powerful angels, taking vengeance with flaming fire on those who don't know God and on those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Those are heavy words. But judgment is a heavy word, is it not? And so... How do we unpack this? Again, it's, it's Paul's word to the church at Thessalonica. One of the beautiful things about this church is Paul writes to them and says, you are my crown and joy. Isn't that beautiful language? Isn't that language of intimacy? Isn't that the language for those of you who are married and you're trading your vows at the altar. You're my crown and my joy. If you're a parent, isn't that the language that you might not say audibly to your kids? But man, your kids are your crown and your joy, and you love them dearly and desperately. 
this church was a great church to Paul. In fact, they were not like a lot of the other churches that went off the rails and had problems. Paul only had to warn them about things. And here what he is doing also is telling them about what to come because they are suffering. They are being kicked out of the city. They are being persecuted. They're being oppressed. Some of them are even dying. And it seems so unfair. Isn't that life now for us sometimes? We believe in this God who he ascended and he rules and reigns, but why are things unfair? Why does life hurt so much? Why is there so much pain? Again, Paul makes this beautiful move back to the Psalms. Almost as if he's trying to teach us something. Psalm 13. Lord, how long will you continually forget me? How long will you hide your face from me? How long will I store up anxious concerns within me, agony in my mind every day? How long will my enemy dominate me? Consider me an answer, Lord, my God. Restore brightness to my eyes. Otherwise, I will sleep in death. My enemy will say I've triumphed over him. My foes will rejoice because I am shaken. I think some of us feel that way sometimes. How long, O oh Lord? In these last two verses. But I have trusted in your faithful love. My heart will rejoice in your deliverance. I will sing to the Lord because he has treated me generously. This passage says that God alone has the right to judge, which is what the Old Testament Jews believed, except for Paul is saying Christ has the right and role and power and authority to judge. And so he will come to judge the living and the dead. And there's a twofold meaning here. The first is this. When Christ comes, there's going to be two kinds of people on the earth. There's going to be all those who are alive at the time of his coming. Then there will be all those who since the beginning of time have passed away. And God is going to judge both groups of those people because there will be a resurrection. And soul will be united with body. The second thing that Paul says is, and the second meaning of this living and dead is simple. It's a spiritual meaning. Because the living are those who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And the dead are those who have not. And it's a sobering thought. It's a thought that should challenge us even to think what keys have we placed our trust in? The keys of this world or the keys held by Jesus Christ? So this time, if you do have questions, um, you want to send them in. If you're curious about something, um, please go ahead and do it. I'd love to close with a final thought. Uh, again, awakenqna at gmail.com. So awakenqna at gmail.com. So we've looked at three key words uh, from this creed, location, authority, and judgment, and how they all tie in to the singular figure of Jesus Christ. 
But the questions that we need to wrestle with, has Christ ascended in your life? If you put him over all things, the second question, does Christ have authority in your life? Is he sitting and ruling and reigning over your life? And then third, do you trust in Christ's judgment? And that's very hard to do. And so I'd love to just throw out, what does that look like? There's a tension there. What does that really look like? I think it looks like one thing. It looks like worship. You see an ancient world when the king is seated on his throne, everybody else comes in and they bow down before them. They are on their knees. Sometimes they even fall prostrate. And they say, you are worthier than me. What would you like me to do? They worship. Um, it's interesting in the Gospels as well, when, when Christ ascends, it's recounted in Luke and Acts and Matthew and Mark and John, all of them. All the Gospels and Acts, kind of the, the historical document of the early church. When Jesus ascends, the disciples worship him. As he's leaving on the clouds, they worship and then some thoughts about what that looks like. Um, and I, this is where I think the beauty of the Old Testament tying into the New Testament is evident. Because all of these men and women who are worshiping were most likely Jews. And they believe that worship centers around word. The word was given to them at Sinai in the law, but now a new word had come from Jesus Christ. And their response was to believe and profess him as Lord. The second thing they believed about worship was that it involved a weekly rhythm. They practiced the Sabbath, where they would work diligently for six days, but rest on the seventh so they could rejoice at the blessings God had given them, so they could be in community, so they could worship God, so they could have time to reflect and pause and even teach their children what it looked like to worship God. Six days of work and one day of rest. I don't know if our society or culture knows what rest is. We can show up on, at church for an hour, hour and a half, and rest a little bit. Some people might be resting literally. A weekly rhythm, it distinguished them from the rest of the ancient world. They also believed that they were witnesses. And that by their obedience, they showed people what it looked like to follow the word. I think oftentimes in the evangelical church in America, we memorize the word and know the Bible verses, but we don't follow the word as well as we should. And then the last thing that they believed, they believed that the use of their wealth mattered to God. 
And oftentimes, wealth is the last mark of maturity in discipleship. In fact, Paul ends these letters to Ephesians and Colossians and Thessalonians, encouraging them to give so that the gospel could go to the nation and the mission of the church could do one thing, elevate Jesus Christ. These are our applications. Would you dwell and think on them? And uh, let's take a look at a few questions. 